Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina cares about a clean future. That's why they have hundreds of recipes crafted without artificial flavors or preservatives. On top of that, they are committed to using more recyclable pet food packaging. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jam calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 15th. Today, one school district's choice on whether to reopen and how other districts are making that decision. Plus, the fate of international students. Since March, uh, we responded with devices and access for everyone. All 35,000 of our educators went through training to better understand how to use tools and technologies. They signed up to teach kids in summer school. So we're adapting. Educators are rising to the occasion, but it's the health and safety of all in the school community that we can't compromise on. That's Austin Butner. He's the superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District. It's the second largest school district in the country. And this week, he announced that students will not return to school in the fall. They will be 100% online. And a father of four myself, I understand the struggle with trying to balance one's own life, the pandemic and the impact it's having on families. The learning struggles children are having, we know those who most need to be in school are struggling, our youngest learners. I've yet to see anybody teach someone to read online. is isn't happening. We know that. Students with learning differences and disabilities, students learning English as a new language, they need to be in school. We know that. School is the best place to be, and I hear that from many, many families. At the same time, we've heard of the consequence of the virus and the health risk that people feel, real fear about putting themselves in harm's way. And at the end of the day, although we're juggling all three, the learning, the impact on families, it's the health and safety we just can't compromise on. Now, we've tried to think about how we get back as soon as possible. I think that's one of the missing pieces from the conversation is connecting health practice and policy in schools. And if we look to other parts of the world where it's being done and it's standing the test of time, Yes, they're changing health practice in the school. So the painter's tape on the floor and desks further apart, the masks, the sanitizing of all the surfaces. But they're also testing for the virus and doing contact tracing. And that's the missing piece we see. And I think that's the piece that takes us back to school safely as soon as possible. Obviously, the White House and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos have been pushing for schools to reopen in person in the fall. Has that put pressure on you in making this decision? Uh, It's one set of voices. It's one set of opinions. We recognize at a national level and at a regional and a local level, we all want things to be back to the way they were. Returning to schools isn't so simple. So while the exhortation from national leaders to just go back to school is not so simple, that's not science. That's not the guide that we have to look towards. Uh, But yes, We do understand what they're saying, which is children are best served in schools, and we absolutely agree with that. But let's keep the politics out of this because we have to do what's best for children, those who work in schools, and the families we serve here in Los Angeles. You mentioned uh, 
contact tracing and testing and the fact that you would be dealing with a different set of factors and making your decision if there were comprehensive testing and, and contact tracing. Do you feel like there has been enough support on the federal level and on the state level to actually help your your families and students? Or do you feel like you're sort of kind of left out at sea here? There needs to be more connectedness between schools, the health system, the role they play in a functioning economy. You know, in the short term, we look at the impact on jobs. In the long term, there's no economy without a well-educated workforce. So schools are the center of the community. And one of the challenges we're seeing now is testing and contact tracing. I've been saying since we closed schools in March, we need a robust system of testing and contact tracing. That wouldn't be the province of schools. There's a whole set of institutions that practice public health. I spoke to our school community and with a range of what it might take and just order of magnitude, it's probably three or $400 in the course of a year to test every student weekly, to test everyone who works in schools weekly, and to test family members of any of those individuals who might test positive. So keep our school community safe, three or $400. In some context, the state of California, or we Californians, invest about $17,000 each year to educate a student. Three or $400 versus 17000 something we should be seriously considering. It pales in comparison to the need to reopen what was the fifth largest economy in the world just a few short months ago, the state of California. And if we extrapolate the cost of those figures nationwide for all 50 million students and the teachers who serve them in public schools, you're talking about a 15 or $20 billion program nationwide to test all in schools. So you're saying that this would be a worthwhile investment? More than a worthwhile investment. And the tracing piece can be well done at schools. Children ride our buses to school. They're in a cohort of the same 10 or 12 students and one or two teachers each day, so we know who they've been in immediate contact with. And if we need to call the family, they'll take our call. We're schools. They trust us. So we're in a position to do the contact tracing, which is an equally important piece of the testing. And if all three are done, we put the health practice in place, as other countries have done. We test at schools, as other countries have done. And we do the contact tracing. We're going to get back to schools quicker and the entire school community and all those we come in contact with will be safer. When you go to sleep at night thinking like, God, I hope I made the right decision on this, what is the worst case scenario that you worry about? Uh, of the, the consequences of, of this, of having all these kids who don't go to school for the better part of a year? If we don't get them back in school, uh, some will suffer a lifetime of consequence. We know that. We know that if students aren't proficient as young readers in elementary school, they won't have the foundation in place to read for the rest of their life and continue to learn and continue to reach their full potential. So that's an enormous pressure. But at the same time, we closed school facilities before there was any occurrence in school facilities. None at all. No deaths. No disease. And what allows me to say this is the right decision for now is we cannot compromise on health and safety. But we have to be trying to solve that problem. It takes us back to the testing and tracing. So those who wish us to come back and say, well, the imperative is that child who needs to learn to read. Absolutely. Then tell me why we can't come up with the money and the capacity to test that child and test her teacher to make sure they're both safe and appropriate at school. We've got to find the dollars. We've got to find the will. And yes, we are months into this, months into this of learning loss, 
but we're months into this where the system hasn't responded with the testing and tracing we need. So if there were a, a scenario later this year or early next year where there was more money for that contact tracing, that testing, um, and that the the number of new cases was low enough that you felt comfortable bringing kids back into school, paint me a picture of what you think that would look like. We know student needs are going to be great. By August, it'll be five months since our students were not at in physical schools, March to August, five months. That's the longest in modern history. There's lots of studies about the summer slide when students miss just a couple of months of school in the summer, how they'll regress. So we know student needs will be great. We know there'll be extraordinary mental health needs, needs for mental health support in schools. I mentioned more than half the families that we support have had someone in the family lose work. 80% of the families we serve live in poverty before this all started. So the trauma, the stress on families and on children will be extraordinary. We'll be going back in a circumstance where even just the presentation, the spacing apart, the masks, you know, young children in masks, uh, that's a different journey than you or I might have had in elementary school. So come August, the needs will be great. They will continue to grow. When we get back to schools, it'll be the greatest challenge we've ever faced in public education. And my concern is that we don't allow a health crisis to become an education crisis and make sure the resources are there to support the individuals And so the funding is there for the device, for the internet access. The funding is there for the testing and the tracing. The funding is there for the mental health support and all the needs that schools face. Austin Butner is the superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District. You know, it's incredible, the balancing of the risks and the trying to figure out how to move forward as the school year approaches. You know, I think that in March, when the entire school system just suddenly shut down, everybody kind of thought, okay, we're going to just make it through this. It's going to be a few weeks. And then we all kind of accepted, no, it's actually going to be until the end of the school year. But I think most people thought, certainly come fall, everything will be back to normal. I'm Laura Meckler. I'm National Education Writer at The Post. We're almost at fall and things are not back to normal. So, you know, people are really trying to figure out what to do. You know, um, do we do you go back full time as the president would like? Do you stay home full time, go back to the full virtual? Or a lot of places are trying to figure out sort of a half and half, um, what they call hybrid system, where some kids are in the building certain days and other kids are there on other days. So where are we on the actual decisions from school districts and states around the country? Like, what is your sense of what percentage of schools are going back in person in the fall versus places that have said they will not be going back, at least for now? It's really all over the board. I don't have exact numbers, but I do know that in a lot of rural school districts are going back full time. In many cases, they don't have much COVID in their communities, and it just makes sense. They can do it much more safely. 
we're seeing a lot of districts on the coasts and a lot of big city districts that were planning or are planning to do these hybrid models. But we're also just this week seeing more and more places with the surge of cases across California and the Sun Belt. We're seeing more places saying, you know what, we're going to go all virtual. We heard that this week from Los Angeles. We heard it from San Diego, Atlanta, Nashville. Fast food and Walmart and Home Depot. And look, I do all that, so I'm not I'm not like looking down on it. But if all that is essential, then educating our kids is absolutely essential. And in Florida, they, where the governor has said that they should be open five days a week, we have seen pushback from Broward County and from Miami. So, you know, there I think there was a general move towards at least towards a partial reopening. And now we've seen with this case surging, a dialing back of that. So this decision has also become pretty political because you've had Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos and the president both pushing for schools to reopen in person all the way. Ultimately, it's not a matter of if schools should reopen. It's simply a matter of how. How much has that affected the decisions that individual school districts are making? You know, it may be having some effect with some school districts. I think that it has had an effect with a couple states. If you look at Florida and Texas, both right the same week that President Trump started focusing on his reopen schools message, you saw the governors of Texas and Florida issue orders saying all school districts shall be open five days a week for students who want it. Now, there was some wiggle room in these orders and districts are able to do what they think is right. And it depends on local health conditions. So, we, you know, there is some impact. I think when the president, you know, uses that big megaphone to talk, you know, it, you can never dismiss it. The Los Angeles School District is the latest and one of the largest in the country to say they're not going back to school in the fall. Mistake. What do you tell parents and teachers who feel that it's unsafe to go back? I would tell parents and teachers that you should uh, find yourself a new person, whoever's in charge of that decision, because it's a terrible decision. Because... You know, that said, there are a lot of other places that are just forging ahead and almost, it seems like, kind of almost ignoring the White House. And when President Trump talks about it, he talks about this idea that there would be repercussions for schools or school districts. Is that actually a thing that he can do? Like, would there be any potential real ramifications for districts that say that we're going to not have kids in the building as long as this continues to go on? Well, the specific threat that he made was that he would cut funding. They would lose funding. Now, he cannot just pull their existing funding. You know, those rules about who gets the money are set by Congress. They're already set into law. However, there is an active conversation right now about another economic relief package that would include a healthy amount of money for school districts. And you could put strings on that money. And I think the question of how much restrictions they're going to put on the money is yet to be really litigated, truthfully. But I definitely think it's going to be a big part of the conversation. So what do we know about the actual risks of going back versus not going back? So it's a really interesting question. What do we know about children? We do know, and Betsy DeVos makes this point, and she's right, that children are not likely to contract this disease, that very few children have died. That doesn't mean no children have died. It's not a zero risk, but it 
generally speaking, this disease does not seem to affect children, especially young children, in any particularly harsh way. There are risks, there are health risks with going back to school. There's no question about it. But, you know, it's also important to keep in mind there are risks, known risks about not going to school. And Betsy DeVos makes this point a lot. And I think it's a it's a fair point, which is that I and state school leaders were disappointed in that they didn't figure out how to continue to serve their students. Too many of them just gave up. Things like this cannot happen again in the fall. It would fail America's students and it would fail taxpayers who pay high taxes for their education. Academically, it was not great in, in the spring. I mean, there, I think it ranged from kind of okay to terrible. A lot of kids fell behind. In some districts, they were just really unable to do any meaningful education whatsoever. So kids already fell behind. If we have more remote school this fall, are they going to fall behind even further? There's also social emotional issues. You know, kids need to be around other kids. Schools are also the place where kids get counseling. It's where kids get lunch. It's where kids, you know, see a caring adult. You know, I think that Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar actually put it pretty well when he said that From HHS's perspective, reopening schools safely may be the single most important thing that we can do to support healthy families during this pandemic. Reopening schools comes with some risk, but there are risks to keeping kids at home, too. And and so for the school districts that are pursuing what what people are calling this hybrid teaching model of bringing kids into school for part of the time, every other day of the week— how is that actually going to work? Like, what does that look like? And what are the other accommodations that have to be put in place to make something like that tenable? Well, I think the way it works is you sort of have half the kids who are in the building at, on a couple days a week, and then you they're at home the other couple days a week. I think a big question, though, is like, how much live instruction are you going to get at home? Who's going to be giving that? You know, how are you going to manage this if a teacher has kids in their classroom and also has kids on the computer at the same time? But I think it's going to be complicated. Still, I think that a lot of parents would see a hybrid model as better than all remote. Because when you're all remote, I mean, keep in mind from a parent point of view, and I can speak uh, with authority on this, that it is it is hard to have your kids home. I mean, it is hard. You know, we're not trained. And to be working at the same time. I mean, you've got two groups of people. You've got parents who need to leave the house to go to work. And if your kids are at home, especially young kids, you know, you can't do your job. Now, that's a political problem for Donald Trump trying to restart the economy, but it's a real life problem for parents who who are trying to figure out how to make their lives work. You know, a lot of parents, I think, would prefer this hybrid model to an all remote. Now, there are other parents who would say, I don't want my kids in school any day. It's too scary. It's too risky. So, you know, there is there. The parents are kind of all over the board. You know, you look at polling and there's a lot of divides. And then I've heard potential proposals about holding school outside, which seems both strange, but also like, why not? Like everything else is upturned. And maybe if we just put all these kids out in big green spaces, then that would actually make school possible. It's like the whole country saying, can we have school outside today? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, um, I've i heard that too. I think that administrators are a little skeptical about how well that could be could work or whether that could be reliable. You know, because number one, obviously you don't have the materials that you generally need to to teach, such as, you know, like a whiteboard and, you know, what happens if you have the whole class back and then 
suddenly it's raining, you know, now where do you go? That, that's what's so hard about this. It, is, it seems like the drawbacks either way are huge and scary and sad that there really is no right answer. Yeah. You've had some professional associations come out and put a thumb on the scale toward reopening. The American Academy of Pediatrics last week came out with a report that said that schools should do everything they can to reopen, that that should be their posture, that because the risks of being out of school are so significant. And we're actually getting a report today from the National Academy of Sciences that says something very similar, that the health risks are not as great as the other risks um, of keeping schools closed. But what about teachers and teachers unions? I mean, I would imagine that if they're going to be on the front line of this, they might feel differently about reopening. Totally. Teachers are concerned, for sure. They're very concerned about reopening. You know, teachers that are older or have health conditions, you know, are they going to be forced to retire or take a leave if they feel scared about going back? A big question for our country is how much risk do we expect teachers to take. The White House press secretary, when asked about this, said, well, you know, they're essential workers. Some people just have to do their jobs because it's that important. Are teachers in that bucket or not? I think teachers unions would say that, yes, they are, in fact, very important, but that doesn't mean you can play with their lives. So, I mean, it's a really, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a tough thing. Laura Meckler covers education for The Post. And now, one more thing. So here's the news. A court in Boston that was hearing a lawsuit against the Trump order announced that the government had reached an agreement to reverse its order. And the content of the order was that the international students were not allowed to take a full online course load in the fall and stay in the country. So, in effect, the lawsuit is now moot because the government has agreed to undo what it did on July 6th. The government just dropped it. My name is Nick Anderson, and I cover higher education for The Post. As a general rule, international students do need to take in-person classes when they're in the United States. That's why they get their visas to come here and take in-person classes on the very simple theory that if you're all online, why do you need to come to the United States? You could just be online from your home country. But when the pandemic really erupted with force in February and March and campuses were forced to close and universities were forced to teach online only, it raised an issue. Well, what about these rules for international students? And so the, the federal government created an exemption that allowed these international students to stay in the spring and finish their work uh, without having to go home. Fast forward to July 6th, the federal government announced abruptly that it was making a modification. The Immigrations and Customs Enforcement told colleges and universities, no, if students take a fully online course, they cannot stay in the United States. The best rationale that we could divine from this was that the administration was really pushing colleges to 
open more in person than they so far are doing. This is part of, I think, the administration's overall push to open up education as much as possible and resume the normal order of business in the fall. Now, the problem is, of course, that the pandemic is not letting colleges and schools resume normally. There is no normal right now. And so this order by the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement created a huge headache. And so they fought back. The pandemic is really putting international enrollment under great stress. So now that this issue with ICE and the online education has been removed, that doesn't necessarily solve every problem. It's very difficult for students to travel. It's very difficult for them to get visas. And so there's a, a, an expectation that international enrollment is going to drop this fall. That's all separate and apart from what we just saw with the Trump administration's order for online studies. That's um, a lot of whiplash emotionally. So now these students are feeling relieved, but I think they're also still probably feeling a little whiplash. This is a difficult time to be an international student in the United States, and this episode just only reinforced that. Nick Anderson covers higher education for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you have not yet filled out our audience survey, now is the time to do it. We're trying to learn more about our listeners, their listening habits, and what they think about the podcast. The best part is, not only does it help us immensely, you can also win a gift card that you can use for all kinds of retailers for $100. Think about all the things you can do for $100. So fill out the survey, which you can find at WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. And thanks. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.